morning, friends. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Good to be with you guys again. I am getting over a little bit of a cold. My voice is fighting back a little bit, so water handy if we need it. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be in Jonah chapter 3 this morning. It's one of the uh, little tiny books near the end of the Old Testament. You may want to go ahead and start fumbling your way there if you don't uh, already have, 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 have uh, access to that. Um, Daniel Hosea, Joel Amos Obadiah, Jonah Micah. I remember that from a song when I was taught the books of the Old Testament as a kid. So if you get to Micah, you've gone a little bit too far. If you get to Daniel, you haven't gone quite far enough. But you're familiar with the story, <clears throat> uh, I imagine. And, you know, I, we've just come off a week of Christmas celebration and going into to New Year's. And so I imagine there's a lot that you all have had great gratitude for uh, in the past week, as well the, as well you all should. Uh, but even, even with that being the case, I imagine that there are things in your life, as is also true in, in mine, where we feel frustrated by our inability to, to impact uh, difficulties of various kinds, some on a larger scale, say, for example, um, terrorism in the, in the Middle East, um, some on a smaller scale, like broken friendships or the ever-tightening belt around the, the family budget. But what I want us to consider this morning as we, as we ponder Jonah chapter 3 together is, is the, the, the observation, the finding there that, that God is actually inviting us in this passage this morning to be a part of something that is really big and tremendously impactful. <clears throat> uh, in fact, uh, by means of a, there's a negative example in Jonah chapter 3, a positive example that, that gets contrasted. I believe the Lord wants to show us something about how each of us this week can be a part of something as significant as an assault on the gates of hell. Sound interesting? Let's get to work. We're in Jonah 3, I said. Uh, it is effectively, it's kind of hard to just dive into Jonah 3 without some point of reference to the rest of the story, but I feel comfortable doing it because you probably all know the rest of the story, right, from childhood and, and, and Sunday school. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll reach to other chapters, but, but Jonah 3 is going to be our bullseye. Basically, and we'll read it in just a moment, what we find in this chapter, this is take two for Jonah on his commission to go to Nineveh and to warn the Ninevites, this significant city uh, in Assyria, about the impending judgment of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> as you know, Jonah has previously, in chapter 1, he's tried to flee this prophetic commission from the Lord. God has, so, so this is, in chapter 3, this is the second time he's receiving the commission, thus the name of the sermon. In chapter 1, he's commissioned to go, and he heads in the opposite direction, right, effectively. Hops a, hops a ship, and, and you know, the, the storm, and the, and the big fish, and three days in the belly of the fish, and what have you. Um, Jonah is not eager to go to Nineveh. He is willing to resign his prophetic commission, even at the point of it costing him his own life. That's how eager he is to do the opposite of going to Nineveh. And yet, God did not accept his resignation, if you will. He's giving Jonah, in our chapter, chapter 3 this morning, the charge once again to go to Nineveh and preach this message of impending judgment to his enemies. 
So let's read uh, from chapter 3. Follow along with me as I read. And we'll kind of get our bearings on the story and bear down on the things that I, I think the Lord would have us take away this morning. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, <clears throat> Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation <clears throat> and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. <clears throat> so verses 1 and 2, again, they sort of introduce the do-over, the second take, right? Uh, what we saw in chapter 3, 1 to 2, is basically an identical restatement of what's uh, pr present for us in chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, this is 1, 2. That great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. What's interesting <clears throat> in chapter 3 is that at this point, while we are waiting to see what happens in Nineveh, right? We're, we're, we're waiting for the unpacking of that. We are not waiting to see, in general, if the Lord is merciful in his character, right? He's already been merciful. This is the part you kind of have to recollect. He's already been merciful to the pagan sailors in chapter 1. Already spared them, right, from the storm. He has already been merciful to Jonah in chapter 2 in preserving his life from certain death by sending the great fish. And he is patiently pressing Jonah even now by, by the hand of mercy into his prophetic obligation, which will result in Jonah not only being a channel of mercy to the Ninevites, but it is also a mode of God's surgery on Jonah's very deep misunderstanding of himself and his very deep misunderstanding of how grace works. Now, by extension, the message of this book is a merciful reminder to us as well, isn't it, about how dangerously easy it is to misunderstand ourselves and to misunderstand the nature of God's grace. Verses 3 to 4. Unlike the first time, <clears throat> Jonah now resigns himself to go to the great city of Nineveh. Like, there's nowhere he can go. There's nothing he can do to flee this commission. He can't even die. But he's not enthusiastic about going. And when he gets to Nineveh, his message is incredibly brief. You saw it in verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all that's recorded for us 
of Jonah's comments to Nineveh when he arrives in chapter 3. By the way, it's the same language. Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's the same language that is used to describe God's threat of judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, <clears throat> some commentators think that maybe Jonah said more than what is recorded in chapter 3, verse 4. Maybe he said more than yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But I, I think there's good reasons, and I'll point a few out to you. I think there's good reasons to see that he probably didn't say more than this, and that whatever he did say was focused exclusively on a message of coming judgment. We'll say more about that in a bit. In verses 5 through 9, we see, the, we see the response of the Ninevites. It's instantaneous, and it is far-reaching, even though it's based on a very sparse message. It starts in verse 5, the people believe God. It extends to the king. It's officialized by the king in verses 6 through 8. The king agrees with God's word about the, the evil and the violence. This is in verse 8, the evil and the violence of the Assyrians. And, and the, the, the transformation is, is society-wide, right? The king, the citizens, even the animals are called upon <clears throat> to actions of repentance and self-humbling. Now, the point in part, the point in part of this, this massive transformation that's occurring in, in Nineveh is to provide a major narrative contrast to Jonah's own response to God, isn't it? So Jonah has far greater knowledge about God, and yet his obedience is far from instant and it is far from thorough. See, Jonah 3 in, is narrating in some ways the truth encapsulated in chapter 4, verse 2, namely that God is slow to anger and that he loves to be merciful to sinners. We praise God for that, don't we? We praise God for his patient mercy. At the same time, as we've already sort of made mention of today, it's also true that God does not trifle with sin. In fact, a subsequent generation of Ninevites was destroyed for their unrepentant wickedness according to the prophecy of Nahum. So God doesn't trifle with sin. But in this case, in this case, as we see in verse 10, following the repentance of the Ninevites, God does show mercy, and he relents from sending judgment. So that, in a nutshell, is a summary of the story, what's going on in chapter 3 in particular. What are we supposed to take from the message of Jonah chapter 3? Well, I want to propose four key points, okay? Four key points. I'll state them a time or two, and then uh, we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking them. Four key points. Number one. We're supposed to learn something about the poison of spiritual pride. The poison of spiritual pride. Jonah's pride is, it does have a, a, a nationalistic dimension to it, Israel relative to Assyria, but deeper than the national pride is the spiritual pride. More on that in a bit. So that's number one. Number two, we're supposed to take away something about the initiating grace of God. The initiating grace of God, number two. Number three, and I dare say the most important of the points, Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Number four, number four, we are supposed to heed the warning. 
we are supposed to heed the warning. So the poison of spiritual pride, the initiating grace of God, Jesus is the greater Jonah. Number four, heed the warning. Ready? Here we go. <clears throat> the poison of spiritual pride is the first point. So uh, Jonah's uh, reluctance to go to Nineveh, as we've already hinted at at least, it turns on the hinge of a major misunderstanding of himself and a major misunderstanding of how grace works. And the result of this deception is what I'm calling the poison of spiritual pride. See, Jonah has come to view himself as one of the good guys who's getting what he deserves, whereas he views the Assyrians as the bad guys who deserve different treatment. Now, in some respects, we, we, uh, we don't want to be like a Jonah towards Jonah, right? In some respects, we can understand Jonah's angst about the Assyrians. In chapter 3, verse 8, the, the king of Nineveh has acknowledged the violence and the evil of his own people. And they have been in the past and will be in the future a great threat to Jonah's, to Jonah's people, right? The problem is not so much, by the way, that Jonah opposes the sin and evil of the Ninevites. The problem is that he has neglected to see how his own sin and evil puts him in the very same boat of needing God's scandalous, enemy-loving mercy to rescue him as well. What's happened here? Jonah has slipped, right? His mindset has slipped from embracing righteousness to the embrace of self-righteousness. It's a big difference between the two, isn't there? That trap, that trap of self-righteousness springs for any of us when we would try to claim even just a little bit of the credit for why God should have chosen to show mercy to me. Right? A little bit of ground for both. It usually happens beneath the surface, right? But we subtly find ourselves, when, we're, when we indulge this trap, we subtly find ourselves thinking a little bit more in terms of merit and a little bit less in terms of mercy. That's a danger to everyone. As Jonah finally heads off to go to Nineveh, you can almost hear him grumbling underneath his breath. I thank God I'm not like those evil Ninevites. One commentator put it this way. He said, that's the danger of spiritual pride. By focusing on the sin of others and forgetting our own, we view others as lower than us and thus unworthy of compassion or grace. They become sinful objects we can write off as undeserving of our mercy and love or even of God's. So Jonah heads out. He's fine, he, right, he is finally going, but he heads out hoping that God will destroy Nineveh even while he fears that God won't do that. You know, I think that if Jonah had been completely convinced that judgment was going to fall, he probably would have jumped at a chance, at the chance to have a front row seat to watch the fireworks go off. But because he expects that God is up to something else, he's not eager at all to go. So he heads into the city, he gives this very terse message about God's looming judgment. Now, his behavior in chapter 4 is one indicator. There are more, there's more than one, but it's one indicator that, that, that Jonah didn't explicitly say, hey guys, just so you know, if you repent, God's going to show you mercy, right? 
see a little bit about that in a moment. But, but one indicator from our own chapter that Jonah didn't say that comes from the king's reaction in, in verse 9, doesn't it? When the king says, who knows, maybe God will turn and relent. That means he doesn't know for sure that God will turn and relent. He has not been told by Jonah or anyone else that God will certainly turn and relent if they repent of their behavior. He has not been given that as a specific, explicit assurance. But even though Jonah's message is meager, God's word, thankfully, is living and active, and the surgery is underway. We see that in our next point. Point number two, about the initiating grace of God. God's grace manifests itself not just at the point where he relents from judgment. God's grace is on display in the warning against sin and evil itself, isn't it? It's both and. It is absolutely true that their sin and evil must be stopped, but it is also true that God shows mercy that leads to the awakening of their repentance. Sometimes we, we read about God's relenting in this and other passages uh, in the scriptures, and, and it can be a case for, for curiosity, right? Does it mean that God relents? Well, what's happening here becomes clearer once we understand the purpose of a warning. The purpose of a warning. See, what's, what's implicit about the nature of a warning in Jonah 3 is made explicit in other places. I'm going to read you one example from Jeremiah 18. If you want to keep your finger in Jonah 3 and flip to Jeremiah 18 for a moment, that's fine. If not, I'll read it to you, just verses 7 and 8. What's implicit about the warning in Jonah 3 is explicit in Jeremiah 18. Let me read these two verses to you. This is Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. God speaking <clears throat> through the prophet Jeremiah. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Okay, That's, that, that get, helps us get a little bit of our bearings on the purpose of a warning, doesn't it? God, in the Jeremiah 18 passage, God is saying, if I threaten judgment, and the result of hearing that threat or warning about judgment causes those who hear it to repent of sin and turn from their evil, then I will relent, God says, of the disaster I had threatened to bring upon them, or the judgment I had threatened to bring upon them. Um, <clears throat> see, if, see if this helps. Uh, think about the purpose of a warning um, along the analogous lines of the way a parent might reason with a child. Okay, so we've got mom, this is just hypothetical here. We've got mom warning little Johnny about flicking his peas at the dinner table at his little sister Susie. Okay, mom could say, we'll give you two options. Mom could say, little Johnny, I'm gonna punish you if you don't stop flicking your peas at your sister. Or she could say, Johnny, you're about to be punished. Now, the first one, the first one makes an explicit statement about the condition of Johnny's repentance, doesn't it? 
the turning of Johnny's behavior as the means by which he avoids the punishment. The second statement is not explicit about that. It does not explicitly include that condition of repentance as the means by avoiding judgment. But no matter how she says it, with the condition explicitly stated or without, the purpose is to turn the behavior. The purpose is to turn the behavior to avoid having to follow through with the threatened punishment. So, stay with me. A, whether it's a divine warning or a parental warning, a warning is issued to stir up the turning of behavior, which is then met with the relenting from judgment. You with me so far? By definition, <clears throat> warnings invite an opportunity to respond, don't they? And the one who issues the warning is the one who is taking the initiative. You see, if time's up, if it's game over, you don't warn anymore, you just punish, right? So warnings themselves are an instrument of mercy. The warning, when a warning is not required, right? You, you don't, if the sin's already in progress, you don't have to give a warning. You could, God could just judge. Mom could just punish. But the giving of a warning is an attempt to turn... You, you with me? Okay. <clears throat> and again, that's true whether or not... The, if you repent, I will relent, whether or not that is explicitly stated or not. Now, okay, so go from Mom and Johnny back to Nineveh. Nineveh is already evil and violent, aren't they? Like, they're not thinking about getting evil and violent. They already are. They already deserve judgment. God doesn't owe them a warning. He could just judge. So even if all that Jonah explicitly states is that judgment is looming, that is an initiation of mercy by God to stir up their repentance, isn't it? Why, why else would God have Jonah say, yet 40 days? Or in 40 days, right? None of us shall be overthrown. What's the point? You see, you see the point of that? There's a, there's, there's a window. There's a 40-day window in between the threat of judgment and the fulfillment of judgment. Why do that? They already deserve judgment. What's the point of the window? The point of the window between the threat of judgment and the fulfillment of judgment, it's a signal, isn't it? It's implicit, but it's a signal. Time's not up yet. There's time for you to repent. And so be delivered from <clears throat> the judgment. You see what's happening there? Some people have tried to leverage the language of divine relenting to say that God is somehow pivoting in response to things that he didn't foresee. I just want to encourage you... Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm going to give you one little, like, we can do a lot with this. I'm just going to give one little hint here, okay? Uh, sometimes, so, so when you're drawing conclusions, doing theology, thinking about the nature, the character of God, sometimes it can be confusing if we take a statement about what God does and a statement about what humans do, and the same verb or the same, the same action right, term is, is, is used, like humans relent, God relents, those, those kind of things. Um, and you might go, well, same verb, so I guess 
God must do that however humans. Here's what you have to account for when you read the scriptures. Same verb might be used, but there's a difference between the creator and the creature, isn't there? God is a different kind of being. So <clears throat> while there may be overlap between, it's like, even think about humans' love and God loves. So there's a, right, there, obviously there's, there's, there's overlap, but there's a world of difference in those two sentences based purely on the kind of being that God is. Eternal, Trinitarian, right? Omnipotent, omniscient, from eternity past. Love of self-sufficiency. You, you, okay, so that's just kind of a, it's worth keeping that in the back of your mind. God's a different kind of being than we are, and that affects how we interpret language about God in the scriptures. Okay, but God is taking initiative. Once again, God's taking initiative by means of this warning to stir up the human repentance in Nineveh that he himself has already pledged to be merciful towards when he encounters it. God has pledged to be merciful when he encounters human repentance, and what he's doing in Nineveh is he's stirring up the human repentance to which he himself has promised to be merciful. Isn't that amazing? It's just, it's mercy beginning, middle, end, all the way, all the way to the top, all the way to the bottom. It's drenched in it. And here's the thing. Jonah senses that's what's going on here. In chapter 4, we see Jonah basically say, I knew it! I knew this is what you were up to, and that's why I tried to run away in the first place. Check out just verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. So God's, at the end of chapter 3, God's relented. Chapter 4, verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. We'll talk more about why he's angry in a minute. And he prayed to the Lord and said, this is what Jonah said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? In other words, the first time. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Isn't this why I ran away in the first? Not because God said, I promise I'm going to deliver them. What does he say? What, what, why does he say that he knew this is what God was going to do? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's a quote about God's character from Exodus 34. How does Jonah say he knew? Not because God made him a promise, because he knows God's character. He knows that God is slow to anger and loves to forgive. Jonah's happy about that in his case, not so happy about that in their case. Now, one of the reasons that Jonah can sniff what's going on here, right? He can sniff what God's up to, even though he hasn't precisely stated this in advance, this pattern of warning, human repenting, divine relenting, Here's one of the ways he can tell. This is right out of God's playbook with Israel. This is right out of God's playbook with Israel, right? Famously so, all the way back in Exodus 32, when Moses was warned by God about Israel's idolatry with the golden calf. In that story, the people of Israel at the, at the base of the mountain are already committing idolatry, so God doesn't have to tell Moses anything. He doesn't have to warn. He doesn't have to invite Moses' mediatorial intercession. He could just judge. But God alerts Moses, and he invites mediatorial intercession to which he himself can then show mercy to Israel. But the upshot of that, so God relents from judgment in Exodus 32 as well towards Israel. The upshot is what happens in Exodus 32 and Jonah 3 look awfully similar. 
Jonah 3.10, let me read it for you again. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do that. Now, I'm just going to read for you Exodus 32.14. You can jot it down and take a look at it later. The Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. The language, the grammar, the verbiage, it's virtually identical, right? So God is repeating this pattern of mercy in Nineveh that he had very famously done for the people of Israel, and Jonah recognizes it, but he doesn't like it this time. You know, you know uh, many, many commentators have, have pointed out that there's a lot of similarities between this story of Jonah and the parable of the prodigal son in the New Testament. And Jonah, in some respects, like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, has come to view himself and even his kinsmen as spiritually superior and thus inherently more deserving of God's favor, hasn't he? Jonah can fathom a world in which God loves him. But Jonah cannot fathom a world in which God loves his enemies. While it's pretty obvious that God is definitely warning Nineveh in our passage, it's very important that we do not miss that God is also warning Jonah to repent of his spiritual pride. God is not only doing a work in Nineveh, he's doing a work in Jonah. If Jonah will come to estimate himself correctly as one who is also a mercifully loved enemy of God, he may come to a more mature perspective on the news that God loves his enemies. And of course, the same goes for us. So how can we get to the place where we are grateful not only for the fact that God loves us, but for the fact that he warns and loves and desires to save our enemies. That leads us to point number three. <clears throat> Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus is the greater Jonah. So here, I'm, without turning there, I'm taking my cues from what Jesus says himself about Jonah in Luke 11 and Matthew 12. Okay? So Jonah's story points beyond himself, doesn't it? Points to one who is greater than he, and one who does a greater work than he does. So let's just consider a few contrasts between how Jesus treats his enemies and how Jonah treated his. So there was a time when God told Jesus to arise and go. Jesus came not to an evil city, but to a world that is Nineveh, didn't he? Make no mistake, we are Nineveh. And in response to the summons to go, Jesus didn't balk. He didn't complain. He didn't try to flee in the other direction. He didn't begrudge. No, he arose, and as Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy set before him, he went with a gospel message backed by the offering of himself as our saving sacrifice. Jonah grumbled about going to Nineveh. Jesus wept over the city that was about to kill him. See that in Luke 22. Jonah might as well have been dead in the belly of the fish on account of trying to flee. Jesus actually died and rose again to pay the debt for his enemies when he went to the cross on our behalf. Jesus faced a harder test, and he won a greater victory. 
Jesus did not just face the potential wrath of the Ninevites, who may or may not like what he had to say. Jesus faced the wrath of God for sins that he did not commit. Christ's was a greater sign confirming a greater message. And the fact that he decisively saves his enemies, all of us included, is what frees our own capacity to pray for that same deliverance for our enemies. See, when God initiates grace to us in Christ, that that leads to our forgiveness. Yes, amen. So thankful for that. But God's grace, while it forgives us, God's grace also enlists us as ambassadors of God's great enemy-saving mercy. Because when we taste it, when we receive it, we come to know and celebrate that that enemy-saving mercy is the only way that we can be saved. We begin to estimate ourselves rightly. And that is how we come to point number four. Our passage would have us, in light of all that we've said thus far, heed God's warning and repent and obey his word where needed. So um, here I'm thinking of a few different kinds of needs, a few different categories. Maybe, maybe for some uh, that are here with us today, for some like the Ninevites, maybe there's some evil in your hands. It's like the king says in chapter 3. That, 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 that's coming to mind as we're, as we're talking about this passage. And, and you think, ah, I, need, I need to repent of that. There's some evil I have cherished, I've held on to, I've embraced that I need to repent of. And, 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 and if that's the case, then maybe for you, the word this morning is simply to forsake the cultivation of such sin in your life. That is a crucial warning to heed. The good news is not that you don't need God's forgiveness. The good news is that God loves to grant forgiveness to those who will turn from sin to Jesus. So if you're recognizing for the very first time today that there's some sin from which you need to turn, that's a wonderful mercy to have that called to mind, isn't it? The purpose of exposing that to your understanding is so that you'll heed the warning, that you'll turn, that you'll repent, that you'll believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Good news, friends. If that happens for you today, you know what you'll never have to ask? You will never have to say, who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent. Because of Jesus' death for his enemies, you and I included, you can know for certain that if you repent of your sin and entrust yourself to his grace, God will forgive you on the basis of Christ paying your debt at the cross. You'll never have to wonder if that's true. If that's you, I would love to talk with you after the message this morning. Your pastors would as well. Another group. Maybe... Like Jonah, like Jonah, maybe some of us need to repent of spiritual pride this morning. Maybe you've walked with God a good long while, but you're realizing how easy it is to see the sins of others as more glaring than your own. We all fall prey to that. Maybe that's causing you in, in, in certain ways to feel maybe just a little bit more deserving of God's love because after all, At least you're not like so-and-so, right? If you're seeing that for the dangerous trap that it is, then again, praise God for that awareness. 
Ask him to help you repent of spiritual blindness about your own condition by growing even more impressed by the cost of Christ's sacrifice to win you from an enemy to a child. Third group, perhaps, perhaps like Jonah, you're struggling with the fact that you have an enemy that causes you to struggle when you contemplate that God might show mercy to him or to her. It's a hard one, isn't it? can be. To be sure, we're not ambassadors to an ancient Near Eastern civilization, but as Christians, we absolutely are ambassadors of God's steadfast love and mercy. God enlists us to move in this ambassadorial direction. One of the things that it will do, it'll it'll, it'll diminish, right? You grow in, in love towards enemy. It will help diminish your own bitterness, but more so and more importantly, He requires this of us because it conforms us to the likeness of Christ, doesn't he? And that's good for our enemies, but it's also a gift to us. Now, the reason, the reason that we can take a step in that direction today is because Jesus himself has already done the hardest part, hasn't he? He's done the, he's taken the hardest enemy loving test. So thinking along those lines, I want us to consider taking a step in the direction of loving our enemies today. Not every step, a step. I have a couple of pastoral preliminaries here, okay? Here's the first. Love towards enemy is definitely something to which the Lord calls us. The Lord calls us to love our enemies. But doing so does require discernment, okay? In other words, in other words, we can, we can go awry if we think of love only in overly sentimentalized terms, right? It doesn't mean, loving your enemy does not mean turning a blind eye to sin. Love can be compatible both with confronting sin and overlooking an offense, can't it? And it takes wisdom to discern which is called for on which occasion. And we definitely don't have the time to work through a bunch of different scenarios case by case. That would be something that could be very helpfully processed, maybe in small groups, uh, with pastors, different discipleship settings. But it's worth acknowledging, right? We're not reducing love to this overly sentimentalized, blind eye to sin kind of notion. Here's a second pastoral observation. Since we're thinking of learning to take a hard but fruitful step of love towards enemy, maybe, if this is all scary and new to you, which it very well may be, maybe, maybe don't start with a, with a 10 on the proverbial Richter scale today, right? That kind of enemy. And I'm not saying that you never get there, but I am saying that progress is progress, and it's okay to start somewhere. So, for, so, so maybe, maybe today... Think, in, in, in terms of the, the, the category, think, think less of the person who maybe abused you as a child. And if this is all brand new, start instead with maybe something like a friend who relied on you when it was needed, but they then ditched your friendship when they felt less in need. And so you felt the sting of being used, Right? Or, or maybe, a, maybe you know, something like a boss who passed you over for a promotion that you truly deserved. Think something more on that level than... Now, <clears throat> I, I'll just one final 
observation preliminarily. I absolutely believe that you can, in cases where it is called for, both seek the just prosecution, say, for example, of a child abuser, and also pray for that person's salvation. You can do both of those things, right? And if you are further, I'm, I'm, I don't want to hold you back. If you're further along in your walk with Christ, if you're ready to do level 10 on the Richter scale, go for it, right? By God's grace, that's where we all want to get. But if this whole notion is new and scary and, and just, it's okay, start where you are. Take, like we said, we're taking a step. You don't have to take every step. By doing so, <clears throat> you can learn to trust God as he meets you in this process and ultimately helps you take a series of steps over time. Okay? All right, preliminaries out of the way. Either way, no matter what category you're working on, I think it's safe to say that the place to start is with prayer. Prayer for one's enemies. Now, I mentioned the parable of the prodigal son uh, a moment ago. I, I know that is just a parable. But if we could extrapolate a little bit from that story... I bet it would be safe to say, this is from Luke 15, I bet it would be safe to say that the older brother reacted as he did when the younger brother returned because he had not been praying for God's mercy towards the younger brother while the younger brother was gone. I'd, I'd be willing to say that's a, that's a reasonable inference, right? What, instead, of, instead of praying for his younger brother while he was gone, what, more, much more likely he's just stewing and increasing judgmental superiority, nursing more and more spiritual pride so that when he finally does come back, he's ticked off that dad reinstates him as a son. So let's bring it back to you and to me. I, you don't have to call out the name of who you're thinking of, but, but whoever's on your mind... God's not asking you to pray for the welfare of that person's soul because that person deserves it. I don't know that person, but I know they don't deserve it. And that's precisely the point, isn't it? They don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We can pray for the welfare of an enemy's soul because we have tasted the mercies of Christ who has not treated us as our sins deserve. Now, let me just be super clear. Probably everybody already thinking along these lines, but just to be super clear, when you pray for an enemy, you're not praying for them to prosper in their sin. Your prayer is for them to come to enjoy the mercy of God that uniquely comes in repentance from sin. Well, what if doing even that much, praying for an enemy, feels daunting today? Well, back up a step. I would encourage you, if that's the case, to pray that God will help you get to the point of being able and willing to make such a prayer for an enemy. If that's a sincere prayer, prayer for help to be enabled to make that kind of prayer, if that, right? even while it may be a struggle, that expresses humble trust in God. Trust in God to clarify our deepest needs, and that means it's a good prayer. It's not a final prayer. It's not a prayer of arrival, but it's a good prayer. So what's the fuel that can get us there? The fuel that can get us there, as we have been seeing, is the growth to embrace more and more deeply the truth that it is not just extravagant, scandalous, 
love, enemy-loving mercy when God pursues our enemies with grace. It is extravagant, scandalous, enemy-loving mercy when he does that for us. So I'm a professor by trade. It's what I do in my day job, which means I brought homework. You want some homework for the week? I think it, I think it fits the theme. I don't, since I won't be back next Sunday, I guess I can't give you a test or a quiz. Maybe Jason will. I'm going to commend this to you. I will consider it extra credit, right? You do it if you want to. <clears throat> it's not too hard. Three part, uh, a three-part extra credit ass assignment, if you will. My recommendation, right, number one, this week, two times, two times this week, pray your way through Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, emphasizing gratitude for how God has been merciful in saving you, okay? Twice, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, gratitude for how God has been merciful in saving you. Two times this week. Be a great way to start 2024. Okay? That's number one. Step two of the assignment, if you will. So after the first two times, later on in the week, go back through the same passage two more times. However, however, on these two passes, through Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, my encouragement would be for you to ask God to do the very same for the person you have in mind right now. I don't know who that is. I don't need to, I don't need to know who that is. We have pastors and shepherds it would be helpful to have a conversation with. That's fine. Okay, so first two, how God's been merciful to you. Second two, God, would you do the same for, right? And if that person, if that person has already turned to Christ, but it's still been hard for you to forgive, then, then instead of asking God to bring that person to salvation, you can work your way through Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, thanking God that he has already brought this person to salvation. What's the, what's the point? The, po the point is trying to help us root out those older brother vestiges of spiritual pride. Okay, that's one, two, and now three. Three. So two times through Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 with reference to gratitude for you. Two times with appeal to God for somebody you have in mind. Thirdly, Last, last uh, bite at the apple this week, shift over to the next chunk of Ephesians, Ephesians 2.11 to 3.13, 2.11 to 3.13, for just one glimpse at how God has produced some of this enemy-loving reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. Back, at, back in the first century by means of Christ's work. So a glimpse at how God has already been faithful to reconcile enemies not only to himself, but also to one another. There's your homework. Let's end where we began, shall we? You want to be part of something really big this week? Really big to kick off 2024? If you'll ask the Lord to help you take a step in this direction of praying for an enemy by faith, I really do believe that you and I can be a part of the assault on the gates of hell this week. Satan is not bothered when we settle for retaliatory tweets and keyboard warfare with the people who make us angry or who have offended us in some way. And he loves it, Satan does, 
He loves it when we succumb to the spiritual pride that smuggles in the thought that I deserve God's favor just a little bit more than old so-and-so. But I assure you, friends, Satan hates it when the grip of spiritual pride recedes a little bit in place of a Christ-like willingness to pray that your enemies, like Christ's own enemies, may yet join the ranks of the family of God. You do that, the impact of that investment, you may not see it in the moment you make that prayer, but it has the potential to be of incalculable effect, not just for your enemies, may God make it so, but also for you and I as we get pressed further and further into the Christ-like mold of who God designed us to be. And friends, that's some very good mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you love to be merciful to sinners, to enemies, to those who don't deserve it. We confess that without that reach of your character towards us, none of us would have any hope. We would be beyond the reach of hope if you did not love your enemies. Jesus, we thank you that you climactically and definitively fulfilled the command to love your enemies, not clutching on to prerogatives that were properly yours, but humbling yourself in the greatest and deepest and most sacrificial service we could possibly imagine. Help us to drink from that well eagerly this week with gratitude afresh for how well you have loved us. And then strengthen our resolve, Lord, by your grace to go and do likewise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.